Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Jonathan, hello. How are you doing, Yonit? Okay, I was wondering if you know what the meaning of true friendship is. Oh no, I feel, what have I done? Have I forgotten the birthday or something? <laughs> I've done something, haven't I? No, not at all. I was just, I want to say I'm perfectly poised to ship some petrol in a FedEx envelope ah. at any given moment. I'm just standing here. Just say the word. You could be like the BBC reporter on this story who glories in the name Phil McCann. <laughs> and this became a bit of a meme. Uh, it is true. And in fact, the, the there had to be official advice not to to go to gas stations, petrol stations with empty plastic water bottles because it's dangerous you know as if people have been doing that and because uh, yes as you know there is a shortage of uh, fuel of petrol at british gas stations and petrol stations as we call them and there have been long lines and long queues and yeah we've have been having to change travel plans because we may not have enough in the tank to get going oh. so yes it is uh, it's a so, kind of blitz spirit here it's war you know ra- it feels like rationing has returned here so we are going to discuss this further in our podcast, I think. Mm. But uh, this has not been the only thing annoying you this week. No, I have been. Um, I, it's bad, isn't it? This, the kind of Sukkot thing kind of winds me up. I, mean, it's, it's, I know it is becoming. I'm becoming one of those people who sort of goes on about it. Um, it always. I think it always did slightly annoy me just because it goes on so long. Nine days, really, in effect, um, with Simchat Torah at the end. I never really loved Simchat Torah, sort of forced, organised jollity. Uh, and you're, you know, it's seven. It's meant to be seven days. You add an eighth day, and then there's Shemini Atzera, and then there's this ninth day. Enough already. Um, and <laughs> you sound miffed. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so it just seems to me like it is. You know, we've talked a lot on here, and in a way it's partly what we're about, about the gap between Israel and diaspora. And to me, Sukkot really kind of dramatizes that gap because it obviously makes sense to eat outside and hang out outside in a really warm country in late September. But it doesn't make so much sense to do that if you live in London. It really doesn't. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I found myself being very... Grinch-like, the kind of Grinch who stole Sukkot, because as regular listeners know, I live in a very Haredi neighbourhood of London. And so, you know, our neighbours in in the area have been extremely noisy, very, very late at night, two, three in the morning, singing away. And uh, I, I found myself being quite glad when the traditional prayer for rain was answered. <laughs> Um, and the rain was falling, and I thought maybe now at three a.m. they're going to finally put a sock in it. Um, and so this is these are unholy thoughts I've been having. Really yeah. unholy. I was, was going to say just treat it like the booster shot for Sukkot, and you'll be fine. We have to say, ah. by the way, that the you know it's always longer in diaspora, always. except in Rosh Hashanah, because we don't trust you guys for knowing the exact date. <laughs> yes, so you have to make it a little longer. Um, and we apologize for that. I mean, but I, I see, I, I understand that this year the whole Samachta Bechagecha thing is not, uh, not not your thing, which is fine. It's not so um, much. I mean, I, I do love the idea of it. I, and when I've marked it in Israel, I've loved it. I mean, sitting in the sukkah with the view of the stars and dining under the night sky, beautiful. And sleeping yep. there, I think all great. But if it's in kind of Hackney on a wet Tuesday in September, <laughs> not so much. And, you know, and as I've said, when it is the noise and the banging and the hucking, after a while you think, okay, let's draw this to an elegant close after, you know, (laughs) as you're entering. Because I was, I was in shul this week for Shemini Atzera and I opened up the machzul, the traditional prayer book, and I did see, you know, prayers for ninth day. And you just think, come on, this is too long. 
it just by any well, standards. You know, I enjoyed the Hakafut uh, this year and seeing it in a in a baseball court where all the I was in a in a town where they didn't pray for, together for a year and for a year and a half, and there was the first time they were coming together in a baseball court. And you got to love the. Jewish tradition that you can pray anywhere. There's a lot of forward thinking in that. Yeah. Um, yes. But okay, I mean, yes. I'm going to do my rants because you did yours, so it's just fair. And, you know, in Israel, you have this a concept of right? I mean, it's now after the holidays. You have to realize that the whole month of Tishrei, you probably have like, I don't know, the, Jew, the Hebrew uh, month of Tishrei, you probably have like eight working days and even less school days. Just to note that the gap between the vacation days children have and their parents have is very large in this country. Yes. Uh, it would be anything between 39 days and 54 days, depending on how old your children are. So now we are past that. So the and stress the is leaving is, you at last, right? A little bit. At least, bit. yeah, a little bit. And you know how Faim yeah, uh, Kishon had this wonderful skit about Israelis. He didn't call them Israelis. It was, it was very clear that he was talking about them. And among his many superb insights, he was talking about the observations of time, observation uh, of the average citizen's sense of time. And he said, tomorrow in, in here in this country means next week. Next week means next month. After the holidays means you'll never hear from him again. <laughs> so that is basically that is basically where we are. I mean, I wondered whether Israelis love the idea that you get the whole, you know, you have summer and that's a lot of vacation happens in summer. And then in September, which around the world is the kind of back to work, back to school month focus, the new year begins. In Israel, everyone goes off on holiday again. And so whether yeah. what that does sort of culturally, does it mean people don't take a big summer vacation because they know they're going to be off in for a big chunk of September? Uh, well, I, I'm going to refer to the group of people that I belong to, which is parents of small children, and that, for them, is a very difficult thing in this country. And it really is never clear why you don't have some sort of unification of the, uh, uh, you know, July, August, September, because it just sounds like, it feels like a very long vacation. So like maybe uh, the so, school semester should run through July, and you should be off in August Right, and that's what the parents have been suggesting for years, and I uh, guess uh, you want to put money on who's going to win, yeah. the parents or the teacher association. Right, <laughs> and they'll sort that out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we can sort exactly. that out. So the world so has come back, though. Yes. It's been There's been quite mm -hmm. a lot of uh, real-world activity, um, and we should uh, we'll take us to the United Nations meeting in New York, because that's been the big event. Indeed, um, Naftali Bennett uh, spoke at the UN General Assembly, the annual gathering of world leaders. You know, you can't not compare it to Netanyahu. For him, uh, the UN General Assembly was the Met Gala, right? He <laughs> appeared like uh, Kim Kardashian with Balenciaga. He was—that was his thing. It was a performance. It wasn't a speech. What is he was BB wearing this year? <laughs> exactly. Is it, is it Givenchy? You know, what is he doing? And the props and the fire and brimstone and the apocalypse, you know, it was his moment. And then you have Naftali Bennett with the speech, you know, the reassurance is nice, Naftali, but it doesn't get you the headlines like apocalypse. Um, and of course, Netanyahu would never be caught dead in the time slot that, that uh, Bennett spoke at. Netanyahu always spoke at the almost 8 o'clock primetime news when he was at the UN, for Israel, of course. And Naftali Bennett got stuck in the, you know, a minute before Sukkot in the afternoon. Um, but, you know, we have to talk about not only what he compares to, but also what he said or maybe what he uh, well, didn't we say. We definitely should. I mean, before we get to that, the slot, the BB slot, the kind of showmanship mm -hmm. slot, is now a vacancy at the United Nations General Assembly because he's not there to hold up his kind of comedy cartoon images of like, a you know, a cartoon ticking bomb and all that. So yeah. it has left a vacancy in the kind of world leader community of who wants that. I thought and wondered if Boris Johnson was, Britain's Prime Minister, was 
going for that role where he did his speech where he quoted uh, uh, Kermit the Frog to say, it's not easy being green. He gave his whole speech over to climate change and the climate crisis and said, you know, as the great Kermit the Frog said. And you could tell he was expecting a laugh, which of course didn't come because he is used to speaking to you know, Rice Slip Conservative Association uh, on the sort of conservative rubber chicken circuit uh, at conservative clubs where they love this stuff, you know, the afternoon speech and uh, and the the deliberate mixing, mixing of high culture references, then low culture and going for the Muppets. It, it just didn't work then. It was just a reminder, A, that Boris Johnson's shtick doesn't really travel, and B, there is still a vacancy. With BB gone, <laughs> any world leader who wants to try their hand at being a bit of a showman and a bit of a performer, you know, while while BB is resting between acting jobs, there is a vacancy uh, uh, for somebody. It could be Justin Trudeau. It could be you, um, if you're listening. Uh, there's plenty of uh, scope there. But, but uh, Boris Johnson did have a go. But yes, we should talk about the content. Yep. Um, you know, I will focus on the fact that he, it, it's headline that I don't think uh, traveled well uh, outside of Israel. Inside Israel, it kind of exploded. He wanted to say that the people who decide about coronavirus are, are the leaders at the helm and not the doctors, uh, not the experts. And it sounded like, I mean, I think what he was trying to do was give a wink to President Biden and support him in his decision about the booster shot. But what it sounded to many people, especially top officials in the Ministry of Health or in Israel, was that he was kind of admonishing them and saying, I'm the person who makes the decisions that kind of blew up here uh, in not a great way for for Bennett himself no um I, it's interesting that that was uh, the the reaction there I found um I mean the big standout for me was what he didn't say and this absence and you can do a word search which I have to say I have done on the full text and the word Palestinian is not uttered in the in the whole speech and you know I can see that he's trying to make a point there that you know there's more to say and that the and this is was always the goal of Netanyahu to downgrade the issue. Um, so it was no longer, uh, you know, the number one diplomatic issue uh, that people associated with Israel. But it just is. And um, it just is that issue. And he, to not even mention it, I think looks uh, kind of insulting, not only to the Palestinians themselves, actually, but to the to the world community that for, that rightly does feel invested in wanting to see a solution to this conflict and the timing, you know, because it's been making a lot of news around the world, this um, this attack on the West Bank village of uh, Khirbat al-Mufkara, the, where, you know, dozens of settlers did this uh, arrest wearing masks on Palestinians with stones, destroying cars, damaging water tanks, and so on. I think three have been arrested over that. You know, that stuff does just just goes on and people do expect an Israeli prime minister addressing the world at least mm -hmm. to mention it. So you think it's not like a dysfunctional marriage? Maybe if you ignore the problem, it goes away. I mean, that what, that's what it felt like. His logic and the logic of, of his uh, advisors was basically, we're going to detach Israel's image from the conflict, right? I mean, <laughs> that makes sense to the extent that the conflict will agree to be detached from you, which obviously, as you noted, uh, doesn't happen. That happened after his speech. What you uh, mentioned before his speech, there was an operation which uh, the IDF thwarted a, a, a big uh, um, return to suicide bombs that Hamas was planning in Jerusalem. As you say, it's not something you can really ignore. He's not ignoring it in his, in his own meetings with President Biden and President Assisi of Egypt and, and the King of Jordan. But in this uh, regard, he ignored it. I think that seemed to uh, people, some, some 
people also inside Israel uh, that that it uh, it was strange. He not only uh, we should say spoke uh, at the UN. He also met with Jewish leaders. Um, uh, hosted by a, a meeting hosted by the Jewish uh, Federation of, of North America, and he said some pretty interesting things there as well. We're working darn hard in a very tough area to build a, an optimistic, energetic, can-do country. This government, which is, was an accident that turned into a purpose, I, I hadn't planned in a million years to be in a government with the folks I'm in. And I never, never thought it would work, let alone be the prime minister. And if there's one thing I want to import from American Jewry to Israel, it's the ability to listen. It's the ability to not define people and put them in a box. And here, you're just a Jew, and you're welcome, whether you're Haredi. Reform, Orthodox, modern Orthodox, you are welcome. Uh, we're going to talk about that clip in a second, but to someone who's really working darn hard, uh, we want to talk to our man on the ground who's in that room and heard Naftali Bennett uh, himself. And this is Jacob Kornbluh, who's not only a friend of the pod from its inception, me Bereshit, but also, uh, more importantly, maybe senior political reporter at Forward Magazine. Shalom, Jacob. Thank you for talking to us. Good to be with you. So, Jacob, you were actually in the room where it happened. You heard him say that. I'm very interested how, I mean, we can unpack and perhaps we should unpack the meaning of what he said there and whether it's right. But I'm just very interested to know how he went down in that room. I'm guessing that's a room full of people who very used to seeing Netanyahu speak to them, what they made of the new PM. Well, I think the the theme of Bennett's speech was basically, here I am, a new guy on the block, you know, a spirit of a corporation. Um, And it resonated in the room. I mean, when I was uh, waiting uh, to uh, go down, um, when the event concluded, I just overheard two people whom I didn't identify and I didn't want to look back just so they wouldn't um, realize that I was listening into their conversation. Um, And they were basically saying that, hey, he appeared very personable and also no drama. Uh, It's something that they haven't seen from Netanyahu because Netanyahu, when he appeared before Jewish audiences, it was was either, you know, large audiences where he had uh, scripted remarks or he would, you know, go on to talk about the Holocaust, Iran, the Palestinians, or even promises uh, about how his government would uh, work with American Jewry. You didn't hear that from Naftali Bennett. Now, obviously, you know, he he was a storyteller. He said the story about his father coming to Israel from America, how he was in New York when, when he was in, in the business world. But he was very short on specifics. Uh, he didn't promise, he didn't overpromise. he didn't even try uh, uh, to impress them with a rhetoric like, you are part of us and we'll work with you on the coattail, on conversion, on other things. So there was little tachlis there. What you're saying is basically a lot of nice words, but there was not anything to explain how we would fix relations or anything like that. 
Right. So for first impression, I would say it had sort of an impact in the transition mode, telling people, hey, you know, we have moved on. It's past Netanyahu. There's a new Israeli leader. Get used to it. It was basically saying, I'm your brother. I'm here to hang out with you. We are friends uh, and we'll get along. What about that point he made that American Jewry is not polarized, everyone listens, people don't have a label on them. If you're reform or orthodox or non-believe, it's okay. Everyone listens with great respect. Is that an accurate description of American Jewry in your view, Jacob? I wouldn't say it's an accurate description because here in America, um, as you well know, the orthodox and the reform, you know, almost do not find each other uh, if it's on the street or when it comes to religious cooperation. However, in the political world, in the, you know, the world of Jewish um, organizations, okay, if it's uh, lobbying on the hill, yes, you'll find that unity. It's nice talk. It's, you know, talking about unity and saying, you know, uh, we are talking to each other, we are respecting to um, each other. But, you know, what about specifics? So first impression, if you'd have to grade him, would be what? And then do they, I mean, does the audience treat him as someone who's kind of a short-term prime minister or they take him seriously? Does he have any gravitas when he's talking to that kind of crowd? I think they view him as Israel's leader. Uh, And so they'll treat him as Israel's leader as long as he heads that government. The second Yair Lapid takes over if and when, they'll treat Yair Lapid as Israel's leader. With Netanyahu, it was all about Netanyahu. It was all about Bibi. It was about, you know, the process. It was about the show. Um, here it's more, you know, um, respect, uh, but also the understanding that Israel is moving on. I think that line he used, what started as a political accident, can now turn into a purpose. I think is a very smart line that might resonate in all kinds of places around the world that he could but, you know, counter his reputation has been quite a right-wing figure by saying, look, we've we managed to turn the tide on polarization and populism and come together. And that could be quite a clever little ticket there, making a virtue of the fact that he's not a big star like BB, but actually represents something different. Yeah, I just think that the patience will wear out as we get along because both the Biden administration and American jury are sort of concerned about the policy of the new government as well. They want to see some movement, whether it's on the Palestinian side, uh, when it comes to uh, diplomatic uh, relations, or when it comes to um, Israel diaspora relations, they want to see some movement um, away from, as you say, away from the polarization, but something also that would benefit them um, and reward them for their support of Israel. Jacob, you, uh, thank you so much for talking to us. You made us smarter, which in Jonathan's case is really difficult, but uh, you did do it. <laughs> ho, ho. I'm only sad that this is just sound only because Unholy listeners not able to see the magnificent Judaica collection that forms Jacob's Zoom backdrop, and that is really quite, um, quite formidable. You- well, you you wouldn't expect me to tell you that I am <laughs> learning all these uh, books that are uh, beside me. I would hope. I hope you already know them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jacob, thank you so much. Thanks for making the time for us. It's my pleasure.
So thank you to Jacob Cornblue of The Forward. Um, our eye is turning here very much in Europe to the departure. Uh, we've talked about Bibi and this, the vacancy and void he leaves behind or has left behind. But there's going to be a really, really big figure. I think probably the only world leader who even came close to Netanyahu in terms of years served, in fact, actually outstripped him in years served. And that is Angela Merkel, because there is now... Well, we don't yet know who's going to be the chancellor in Germany, but there was the election. A new coalition is, you know, taking shape. Uh, and when it does, she will step down. And it just seems, you know, in Europe, it's seen as a really big moment because she had become the kind of de facto leader of Europe, um, just the leader of the, you know, strongest and biggest economy and just um, through sheer longevity. So there's been tons of European commentary about um, what void she leaves behind. But I'm interested, Yoni, in, in, in how people, uh, to the extent they do, think about her and see her going from where you're sitting. Yeah, isn't it interesting you were talking about sheer longevity? I mean, look, just step back from that for a moment. She was, during her time in office, she had five different um, uh, British prime ministers, yep. four different American presidents, and even four different Israeli prime ministers, could you believe it? From Ariel Sharon to Naftali Bennett. You know, first of all, I, I have to, if I discuss, talk about Merkel and, and Israelis and how they saw her, I have to quote from a speech she gave. And she got a standing ovation in the Knesset, uh, March of 2008, I believe it was. She uh, spoke in German. And one of the things she says there was, she spoke of Germany's special historical responsibility for Israel's security. Uh, and she says, as German chancellor, Israel's security will never be open to negotiations. Part of my country's raison d'etre is the, I, she said that in German, it's the farthest than any chancellor has ever uh, went in this. And, and Israelis really appreciated her. Uh, she had uh, our back and, and, and we felt it. Yeah. Germany has essentially become the most liberal, reliably liberal, consistently liberal country in Europe. Liberal defined as believing in those liberal democratic norms of you know independence of the judiciary and free and fair elections and free press uh, etc mm -hmm. and she sort of held out for those and obviously you know her stance on welcoming in syrian refugees it just meant that there was this you know whereas before i think when i was much younger everyone always talked about scandinavia and sweden and denmark as the sort of totemically liberal countries in this period, the Merkel period, maybe a bit before, but absolutely sealed in her period, I think that place goes automatically to Germany. And so that's how she will be seen. I think there's a specific Jewish dimension of that. But, you know, it relates to what you were saying before about yeah, how she's seen and, in Israel. And, and just think of the, uh, the irony of history, right, that for a couple of years, the most responsible adult in the world was the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, that, does, that does say something. I, you know, I look at her, um, I don't know, maybe this is a little... Personal. I always think of my parents. The fact that she was, and I think that is the essential sort of uh, pillar of her personality, the fact that she was not only the first woman chancellor, but the first chancellor from Eastern Germany, the fact that she was the person who saw the collapse of the uh, uh, Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain from that point of view. And I think of my parents who both grew under uh, communist rule. And what it does to you is not only the fact that you respect democracy in a way that we, who grew up in democracies, maybe take it for granted, but you also 
grow up in a situation where you see that any form of government can collapse. And that leads you to, and I think it led her to, be someone who respected democracy in the deepest sense. You can say many things about her. I think you can you criticize you know, the fact that she was maybe a little bit too patient with authoritarians like like Putin or yes. like Viktor Orban. Sure. There are a lot of things you can say, but I, I don't think anyone would argue that she was, you know, a deeply decent uh, uh, politician, even, you know, a moral politician in a world that's maybe shifting away from that. A I bit. think that's right. I think I'm just struck by that image that you conjured a, a few moments ago of her speaking to the Knesset in German. Because there would have been a time in Israel where... And there was a standing ovation. Right, I mean, but there were just the act of hearing German in the forum Mm -hmm. of the Jewish people of Knesset, you know. That would have been uh, itself a kind of sensational thing. And I think almost the most obvious shift in the generations that I've witnessed in my lifetime, Jewishly, is in terms of attitudes to Germany. So my mother, for example, um, would not have German products in the house that seemed perfectly normal to me growing up that you know Krupp's coffee maker coffee bean grinders or whatever or um certainly no you know wouldn't be considered to have a german car that was just obvious and i remember that rubbing off on me to the point where in you know as a child watching the world cup you know you would support any team that was playing germany i may even have been so obsessed on this point that i would work out different countries' wartime record before deciding whether they would, you know, whether you would support them, whether so they were an what, Axis What were you power. left with besides Britain? I'm just you know, saying, so, I'm just know, asking. In, yeah, exactly. Oh, France. Well, yeah, yes, okay. I mean, you would think about resistance. So, you know, Holland, yeah, that was okay. Denmark would sort okay. of be okay. Um, but even though, just if you take me back to my kind of 1982 self. Um, so that... This is the way Israelis watch the Eurovision, what you just Exactly, no, yes, okay. and me, I have to say too, <laughs> but years ago. But... The real sh- so the shift has happened in my own lifetime because I look at my own la- attitudes now and I absolutely do not have those attitudes anymore. I did, and I shed them, and I've travelled to Germany often. And the truth is, there is a kind of I now feel a kind of connection actually when I meet G- Germans of you know my generation or younger. It gets more problematic if they're in their 90s, obviously. Um, And that is that they, like us, have really thought deeply about this subject, meaning the Holocaust, you know, that they, Germany has had a reckoning with the Holocaust um, that is is very hard to criticise. They have engaged with it deeply as a society. Obviously, apologies and ceremonies and museums and all that. But I mean, just thinking about it, talking about it and reckoning with their own guilt and when you travel elsewhere in europe and i've done that too you do not find societies that have done that they are in different stages i would say often of denial you know and you have to hunt around when you're visiting you know lithuania or latvia or whatever for the place that says we took part in this not just we were victims of it but in germany there is an acknowledgement and a reckoning with their own guilt and i think that makes a kind of connection with jews because jews uh, and germans have this trauma in you know uh, as part of their common conversation yeah you know uh, obviously i'm just picking up on that (laughs) israel and germany will never have a normal relationship right there are no two other countries in the world with a connection uh with this kind of connection in which everything seems emotionally charged you know i was i was you you said that you have no problem traveling to germany I, i i have to admit that i don't i can't really think of it as a tourist attraction. Uh, many Israelis in my generation do. They go to Berlin. They go to the Black Forest, and they're fine with it. By the way, I think it speaks to the health of, 
of Israelis, right, that they've left, not that they've forgotten, but they have left the rage and revenge, and they're saying, okay, let's build something that, that is meaningful. Uh, to me, it's more complicated. Um, I think it's just so, something personal, maybe too many ghosts uh, when you walk around in, in places like Berlin. But sure, I mean, generally speaking, obviously, attitudes in Israel have changed, right? Israelis have less of an issue. We are not in the 50s and when the issue of, of you know, uh, reparations and Menachem Begin saying this is going to be civil war. And we're not in the fi- 60s with demonstrations against the first ambassador from uh, uh, Western Germany, right? The joke was then that Israelis, after demonstrating, got into their Volkswagens and drove home. Um, but, you know, we are not at all in that situation anymore. We have moved forward, I, I can just tell you, Jonathan, that I, you know, I accompanied the Israeli commander, uh, the head of the Israeli Air Force, General Norkin, to uh, Germany. Uh, he was, uh, it was a joint maneuvering of the Israeli military and the, and the German Air Force. Obviously, this has its own sort of uh, layer of, of emotion where the German Air Force following the Israeli plane and flying over Dachau, you know, this has this it, these moments, and again, there's this moment when I speak to the commander of the German Air Force, uh, um, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Ingo Gerhardt, and he talks about how Israelis are so focused on the military and how it's a good thing, and how he lament he's lamenting the fact that Germans are less focused on the military. And there's this voice in my head saying, "Maybe that's not such a bad thing." Yeah, so, that, uh, so that, it's I, always no, completely. it's always there. That, that, you know? that, exactly, uh, and I want to be clear about that. That voice does not go away just because I no longer. Mm-hmm you know, have the ban or boycott on German products doesn't mean that voice has gone away. On the contrary, it is absolutely still there. My point was that Germans themselves are engaged with that. Um, I, I realised yeah. that when when you were speaking about going on, on vacation there, I've never done that and I don't think I would do that. Um, I've gone yeah. there, you know, off uh, reporting, writing, some working. And, and working and sometimes but no R&R, and I wouldn't right? go, I, yeah, it, I, I wonder if I would go on holiday. That When you said that, it made me realise I would that I did pause as you said it but I've gone there and be in a kind of conscious way so I've gone there engaging often on this specific topic yeah. and when you do that I think it's uh then it's fine the one question that pops in my mind is how long when you said Israel will and Germany will never have a normal relationship and I uh, one thing I that, you know preoccupies me a lot is how long does this last you know because I still think it because it's a within living memory not of my own memory, but of people I've known and family members and grown up with and so on. When it becomes, you know, as far away in the past as the Battle of Waterloo is now in Britain, you know, when it becomes just history, I wonder whether Israel and Germany at that point, it becomes just like any other country. When you have to kind of look it up in a book to realise why Mm. there was, you know, any problem. I don't know the answer to that. But right now, I think, you know, the way Germany has reckoned with it is almost exemplary to the world in how a society should grapple with its own past and the kind of seriousness of it as a kind of endeavour. And, you know, Angela Merkel was not the first person to do that particularly, actually, or even did it in a particularly intense way. But because she was the head of Germany, for so, a leader of Germany for so long, she has sort of, in some ways, embodied Germany's um, transformation into that into a society that a lot of people around the world admire and emulate. So she'll leave a big gap. Mm-hmm. We uh, we have uh, some awards to give yes, out. Yes, always. Um, yes, if indeed. We're- 
talking about um, the importance of Europe. I think maybe uh, your story in the Chutzpah Award might Let's be give a little that. Chutzpah <laughs> Award to Grant Shapps, uh, who is the Transport Secretary, Secretary of State for Transport in this country. Uh, I'm just now pausing. Is he the only Jewish member of the cabinet? He might be, but that's really nothing to do with his award-winning performance, which means as Transport <laughs> Secretary, he is really the point man uh, for this fuel shortage, which is keeping cars and lorries off the road. Um, People are incensed because there is this shortage of 100,000 drivers of trucks and lorries. 100,000 of those drivers are uh, lacking in Britain at the moment, to the point where uh, people are saying, let's, you know, you've got to just uh, issue emergency visas to European drivers uh, to be able to come here. Because obviously, after Brexit, um, that all those Europeans who could just move here under free movement and work here are no longer here. So Grant Chaps dealing with that says, you know, we could give those short-term visas and the reason we're able to do it is because of Brexit. Because now with Brexit, we're in charge of our own immigration policy completely and so we can give visas to all these drivers who are only not here because of Brexit. And so you just kind of want to pound your head into the wall. But I think that is just breathtaking chutzpah in our purest definition of chutzpah to say that it's because of the thing that's caused this problem that we can address the problem. I'd say, you know, I saw a cartoon, a New Yorker cartoon yesterday, I think. It's like a Boris Johnson-like figure standing at the podium and the caption reads, the shortages are all British made and British owned. And that's something we can be incredibly proud of. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Which is exactly what you're saying. And it just, I don't know what you don't understand here, because I think it was Theresa May who said, Brexit means Brexit. You were told this. You were, I'm, I'm yeah. this is, I don't no, no, you we know, I, 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 this is just. I quite like the, looks, the cartoon of, um, of a British <laughs> Coast Guard boat going along a alongside a, a dinghy with a whole a raft really full of refugees trying to cross from uh, across the channel from France into Britain and the cartoon has the captain of the Coast Guard boat speaking through a meta- megaphone saying can any of you drive a truck which <laughs> which I think is quite good um so we which need to give the problems caused by Brexit can only be solved by Brexit that's right that's, that's genius. it is genius it is a kind of genius yes now what about Mensch Okay, so Manch, since, you know, Jonathan, to you, maybe we have episodes, to me, like the podcast as a whole, and I want to connect all of the, I'm just kidding, Uh, I want to connect to the last episode that we had, uh, our conversation with Kara Swisher and the whole discussion of Facebook, etc., and I will give my Mensch Award, or at least nominee, to YouTube, who has a little, maybe too late, but still, will block all anti vaccine content not only anti-covid vaccine but also just general whatever you've heard like uh, false claims that uh, flu vaccine causes uh, infertility or whatever and other things about autism all of that is of course fake and they will take down all of this uh still waiting for twitter and facebook by the way but still a good beginning and the fact that youtube is taking this off yeah no that's um as you say a welcome first step i'm not sure their record on everything is flawless but that is a welcome (laughs) first step talking of social media Media, you can find us on our Instagram at two Jews, no numbers, just letters. And wherever you get your podcasts, you there always give you an opportunity to subscribe, to follow, to rate us. And just when you are talking to your friends or family, spread the love for Unholy, and it's always welcome. Or this this week after the conversation about Sukkot to So Holy. But uh, we will say thank you. Our thank yous to Leo Friedman, our executive producer, and Tarom Atik, head of podcast, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music. Jonathan, 
No more Chagim left. What are we going to talk about next we'll week? We'll find something. Um, you, we I will rummage so. through the pages of the forward. I'm sure if you're on an El Al flight, you may get inspiration as well, hearing us on Unholy there. We will speak next week. Yonit. Yonit.